World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there, and uh, they are just changing my life. Uh, This show precipitated from a trip that I took in 2016 with a group that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy. Uh, for the D-Day celebration, came back to America realizing we need to share these stories. So hence, I've had the great honor and privilege of interviewing over 100 World War II veterans. So be sure and go to my website for all those previous shows. Thrilled to have on the line with me right now, Armin Sedgley. He's a World War II veteran. He served in the European theater on a B-17 as a bombardier. So welcome, welcome, Armin. How are you doing today? I'm just doing fine, thank you. Well, fantastic. Now, how old are you, Armand? I'm 97. 97 years old. Well, fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's talk. Uh, let's hear your story. Now, where did you grow up, Armand? I grew up in Maine, in the northwestern part of Maine, and uh, I I left Maine and went into the aviation cadet program in January of 42, right after Pearl Harbor in December. Right after Pearl Harbor. Wow. And how old were you at that that time? Well, at that time, I I would have been about 21. Okay. And uh, so uh, you went in uh, in January of 1942. Clearly, we were... Uh, at war. Uh, tell us a little bit about getting into the service. Well, I attended a, a year at the University of Maine, and while we were there, we had what amounted to a recruiting group. In fact, it was two Army Air Corps. Uh, captains and they were recruiting and they were telling us that after we completed two years of college that we would be qualified to take the examination to become an aviation cadet and I was interested at that time but as as it turned out I had but this one year at the university, which would have nullified that qualification, sometime in 1941, they changed the requirement with regard to the aviation cadet qualifications to where if you if you took the exam that they had and you were successful in passing it you could you could be a aviation cadet well that that really interested me along with a few others there in town where i lived and we decided that we would try for the aviation cadet 
examination, and we made an appointment with him to be there in early January of 42. Okay. This was, again, before Pearl Harbor. That right we after had that. already made, made that arrangement. And we went to Portland, Maine, and and we were successful in in the examination, and we were assigned as aviation cadets. So, did you think you were going to be a pilot, or what did you think was going to happen? At that time, at that time, I didn't know anything at all about other than pilot. I, I didn't. I had. I had very little information at that time. I, in fact, the matter is, the Norden bomb site was very, very, very secretive, and that's what the bombardier used. And as a result, there wasn't there wasn't much of any information furnished with regard to anything that as to the qualifications of of uh, the various uh, commissioned offices that there were in uh, in the aviation cadet program so uh, you ended up being a bombardier how did that happen well we this country was sorely unprepared for Helping in the war effort at all, the the attitude was: we've got the Atlantic on one side, we got the Pacific on the other side. They aren't going to bother us, and so as as a re, as a result, we didn't have any preparation for examinations or anything of that nature. Uh, it was. Even though we were actually in the cadet program in January, we didn't get called up until April that year, and we would we were called up to take the examinations and qualifications in Montgomery, Alabama, at Maxwell Field. Out of a hundred of us that took the examinations with with me, there were eighty that were assigned to trade as pilots. There were ten of us assigned to trade as bombardiers, and there were the other ten were assigned. As navigators, oh. and the, uh, the qualifications were never never explained as to the basis of the selection. So I don't know to this day why I was cl- uh, classified as a as a bombardier. So, Arben, what was the train? Excuse me, the training like for that? Can we stop for just a minute? <coughs> Arben, Arben, sorry, I, I have a frog in my throat. <coughs> okay, we're going to start right there. Ready? Yeah, I'm okay. ready. Okay. 
So, Armin, what was the training like to be a bombardier? Well, again, it's hard for people today to imagine how poorly equipped our country was. So even though we were assigned to take training in uh, April, we were sent home because they didn't have facilities for us to take any any training. Wow. Well, after after actually being sent two times, we went back down and and they sent us back home again twice. And then it wasn't until August of 42 that we actually had an opportunity to take what was called a pre-flight course and that was given there at Ellington Field in Houston, Texas and that was about a two-month course and uh, so that took us that took us on up to uh, the fall and again they didn't have after that they didn't have a facility for us uh, right away and our the bombardiers school that I attended was in San Angelo, Texas and uh, we that's where where I uh, attended that had learned the Norton bomb site and and practice bombing with targets that we had, and that took up up until January of '43, when we received our wings as bombardiers and commissioned as second lieutenants in the Army Air Corps. So, Armin, you said that we were very ill prepared. We had been bombed in December of '41. And throughout 42, we're trying to get things lined around. What do you think was happening in 1942 in the European theater and also over in the Pacific? What were you hearing? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think the the thought ever occurred to anybody that I had any connection with with regard to J- Japan, the war the war was on at that time over in North Africa, and the the uh, the Germans, of course, had already invaded and and conquered France, and they. Uh, there was they were preparing there at France, but but uh, sometime in 1942, sometime in 1942, uh, our army went into north into North Africa 
and we, uh, our crew was assigned in North Africa after after the fighting had stopped. There were still facilities there for us to use, so we used an airport out of Tunisia or out of Tunis, Tunisia, and uh, we flew out of there for. Uh, from August till the fall of 43. Okay, and how many missions total did you end up doing, Armand? 36 missions. Now, how many, it seemed to me like initially they told you if you did 25 missions, you could go home, and then they continued to up that. Um, Is that correct? That was a requirement that... that they established in those that flew out of England. They they uh, had a 25 mission. Where we were, they determined that we should fly 50 missions in order to qualify to to go home. Wow, that's a big difference. <laughs> That's a really yep. big difference. So you're, you're based then. You know, how does the kid from Maine who has been training in Texas end up then in North Africa? Well, after we were commissioned in January of 43, we took that bombardiers took a, the same gunnery course that the gunners had that was about a two month course and some after we completed that we were assigned to a 10 man crew and we took what they called pre-flight courses it amounted to three separate courses, and uh, b- before we were qualified to be sent overseas. Okay, so you've gotten, and was that down in Texas, or where did you, where did you take those? Uh, the uh, the flying the orders came from from actually. Located in Salt Lake City. Okay. And they assigned crews without uh, any any knowledge that we had, and I was one of a ten-man crew, and we uh, flew together, and our first phase was in California on the desert in Blythe, California, where we took our first phase. And that lasted that lasted until uh, let's see, we we went there in uh, let's see, we we went we went to in uh, 
in March of 43. Okay. <clears throat> and from there, our second phase was at the Air Force Base in, or Army Air Corps Base at uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. Okay. And that uh, was the second phase. And then the third phase, we were assigned to a field out in Oregon, and we flew out over the Pacific Ocean in order to practice gunnery with targets that were being towed by uh, planes. And that, that completed all of our training that we had. We were all together. We had, we had been assigned our B-17 plane in the, in the second phase, so we had that plane. And that, that completed, completed our training. I tell you what, Armin, let's stop right there. Let's go to break. And when we come back, then you've completed training. Let's hear what happens right after that. Before we do that, though, the uh, NBA and NHL playoffs are underway. Rockies baseball season is here. And Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. Uh, Hooters is the place to watch all the games. Wednesdays are wing day. All the wings you can eat for fourteen ninety nine, and those smoked wings are really delectable, and they're only half the calories. Hooters wings can actually fly. You can have them delivered right to your front door. So if you want more information, go to HootersColorado.com uh, to find out about all their specials, whether or not you want to have uh, the Hooters wings delivered to you or if you want to pick them up. So again, that's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. We are talking with World War II veteran Armin Sedgley. He's a bombardier on a B-17. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. We will be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Uh, Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All these shows are archived there. And I'm thrilled to have on the line with me Armin Sedgley. He's 97 years young. He is a World War II veteran. He served as a bombardier aboard a B-17. We are at the point where he has completed his training. And so what happens from there, Armand? Okay, we completed our phase training. And we went from Rapid City, well, actually from... I should say from Oregon, Pendleton, Oregon, we flew from there to Grand Island, Nebraska, where they gave us the various equipment that we would need, our supplies for overseas duty. Okay. And uh, that was the stage, it was called the staging point. We waited there. Let's see. We we waited. We waited there for for uh, an assignment, and we actually took off for for Europe in uh, July. Of uh, 1943. 43. Okay. And uh, we landed in North 
North Island. And we waited there for an assignment, and they assigned us to, to a base in out of Tunis, Tunisia. And we arrived there in August of 43. Okay. Incidentally, as a sideline, the famous pilot, bombardier, and navigator that were on the atomic bomb mission to Japan was actually there at our assigned base. And we were in what at that time what was called the 12th Army Air Corps. And it was under the 97th Bomb Group. Okay. And we flew missions out of we flew missions out of uh, Tunis area to starting with with Greece all the way over to to France and uh, it was uh, too far. It was too far for us to go much higher, uh, farther than than that from North Africa. Well, in the fall of '43, we were relocated to a base in Italy, and from Italy, of course, we added more targets up into Austria and the Balkans and uh, in Germany. And uh, we still had flights in, uh, in Italy because that's where the fighting was going on at that time with the, with the Germans. And you were, were you also giving cover for the, our fighters as they were fighting? Well, the intent, the intent was that the fighters would arrive approximately at the time that we were ready for our bomb run, which would be about five minutes before we would, we would actually drop our bombs. And the reason, the reason that they didn't come before that was that, of course, they didn't, the, uh, there wasn't any uh, fighter uh, action until we actually got pretty much to where, were the, where the target was. Okay. And so they, the intention was that the fighters that were to protect us while we were on the bombing run were to arrive, as I say, just just before we started on our bombing run. And when we're talking about fighters now, are you talking about soldiers on the ground? 
No, I'm talking about fighter planes. Okay, to come in and give the you... P, P-38s, P-47s, and uh, that's what we had at that time for for our fighters, our fighter planes. Okay, and just to clarify for me, you said that you guys came in as bombers five minutes before that? I didn't understand. Okay, you said, uh, it seemed like I heard you say, Armand, that you guys came in about five minutes before the fighters. Did I hear that correctly? Well, not exactly. Okay. We would fly to, as I say, within, say, about a five-minute five margin before we'd be dropping our bombs. It would be called, a, you know, the bomb run. Oh, got it. But you had fighter and cover. The fighters, the fighters would try to time their arrival to to support us during that because we 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 fired naturally for the bomb run we straight and level and and uh, we're concentrating on on the bomb run and uh, so we had to have fighters in order uh, American fighters in order to to protect us during that period right. of time when we were flying straight and level. And uh, so that's the intention was that they would arrive to protect us during that bomb run. Got it. And were they coming from a different airfield? Uh, let's <laughs> see. They, uh, they had their own, yeah, they had their own airfield, but... Uh, it was it was a within a short distance from from where the bomb <clears throat> airfield was. Okay, now Armin, the first time your first very first um, bombing run, what went through your mind as you were preparing to for that? Well, <laughs> I didn't mention the fact that the plane that we acquired brand new plane in the second phase of our training back in the uh, uh, that that would have that would have been in the uh, uh, spring of 43 that plane we we flew all the time. It was our plane. When we landed at our assigned air base over in Africa, they they told they radioed, radioed us, radioed us, and uh, said, "Make sure that." You take everything that's yours out of the plane, and they picked us up in a some vehicle and took us to where we were going to be camped. And lo and behold, that was the last time I ever saw that plane that we had all that period of time in training. Oh my! Goodness. And 
the policy at that time was the newest crew got the <laughs> the oldest oldest plane, and so we ended up we ended up with a, a plane that actually probably should have been retired <laughs> before we got there. We we were unable in several instances to actually complete the mission, we had to do what was called abort, and uh, because we'd lose we'd, we'd lose engines, we'd we'd they would they wouldn't function, and or radio equipment would fail, and just generally the plane. Should have been, as I said, it should have been retired. Well, anyway, we kept that plane, and on our tenth mission, we definitely had to land, and and uh, we were very fortunate to be able to make it to the uh, to, to Tunis, and we got there to Tunis to the to the public airfield, and we fired our what was called the very pistol with the cartridge that was the color that meant that we had we had to land. We couldn't we couldn't go around. We just had to land. Lo and behold, even though we gave them that signal, the tower obviously either didn't see it or they didn't know what it was. And so there was a, another plane that that came out right when we were on our final approach. Another plane came out to fly off, the, off that field. And so the pilot realized that we couldn't we couldn't land there. And so he veered off in this case to the right and landed put the wheels up and and landed on the ground that had to be a little thrilling <laughs> that was that was the end of that was the end of that plane that was the end of that plane okay so that was 10 missions in uh, and that was our, yeah that was our 10th mission when when that occurred and i'm not sh- i'm not positive that we got credit for I, I don't remember for sure whether we got credit for for those we flew it 10 times but we didn't get to the we didn't get to the target 10 well, times and it was also it was dangerous uh, how many bombers were there in your formation well just just as a rough estimate it was between 35 and 40 in in the uh, group that would be flying for a target. And if you get peeled off from the group, you could become a uh, target for the German fighters, right? That would be, yes, that, that, that would occur. If something happened that you couldn't keep up because of some malfunction of your plane, that you couldn't keep up. Believe me, the fighters picked picked on that plane till till either they shot it down or or uh, 
or you got back home, or or if they didn't shoot it down, they they uh, shot it up so bad that that uh, the plane wouldn't fly. Well, and uh, Armand, as the bombardier. You know, I I mean, I'm learning so much about this. And my uncle actually was a bombardier in the European theater as well. And, um, you know, I don't think that people understand that you were not in pressurized uh, cabins and that, I mean, there were, there, you know, open holes that you would, like, you know, get the bombs to, to you know, be deployed. I mean, it, it's not like it is today. It was, you had open, you know, open areas that you could have fallen out of, I, at least from my understanding. <laughs> well, actually, on the bomb run, the, there's two ways to do it. One is to use the automatic pilot, and that way, when the bombardier, using his bomb sight, makes any correction at all, it is automatically done through the automatic pilot. So you didn't, the pilot didn't have any control at that time at all. Or the alternative was to that was the pilot could fly the plane and the, the, the bomb site would actually send the signal to the pilot. It was a, uh, a pilot directional indicator that he followed, and uh, that uh, was a secondary method of of uh, flying for the for the target. So, w- what did you do exactly then when you got near the target? Uh, what did we what? What did you do as the bombardier as you got near the ta- uh, target? What were your well, responsibilities? Prior to prior to the actually when you start to run, you actually at that time open the bomb bay doors, so the bombs would be able to to drop without dropping through. The, the, the plane sure. and the fuselage. So uh, you had the you you opened your bomb bay doors. The pilot, the bombardier, opened the bomb bay doors with with the device that we had, and you had the bomb bay doors open during that bomb run. Now it was pretty cold, wasn't it? Well, as a general rule, up at that altitude, it would be probably the coldest would be toward 60 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It's pretty cold. Yes. In fact, the better is the... uh, the gunners, the waste gunners, who had the windows open so that they could fire out of their out of their guns, they uh, they 
that was the, the coldest area that there was in the plane was naturally they were right there with the wind, with the, with with the windows open so that they could they could shoot and uh, actually the bombardier and navigator and the pilot and co-pilot and and uh, engineering officer engineering person would actually uh, not be exposed to open open windows or anything. Well, I tell you, that is absolutely amazing. Armin, we're going to go to break. Uh, and when we come back, we have one more segment to continue to hear your your very fascinating story. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project talking with World War II veteran Armin Sedgley, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I have on the line with me Armin Sedgley. He's a World War II veteran. Uh, he was a bombardier on a B-17. They initially were based out of Tunis, Tunisia, and then uh, eventually based out of uh, Italy. And we're talking about his missions. He had 36 missions. That's a lot. And uh, you just did mentioned on your 10th mission that you had a, one of the oldest planes and that you ended up having to uh, abort the landing and actually land it over in a, a clear area. So let's take it from there. Mission 11, is there any other missions that you want to talk about before we get to the 36th? Well, the, uh, uh, the, next, the next time that we actually had uh, uh, a hit was actually from flak or from from the ground they shot their missiles on and when they reached the altitude they exploded and the, and the flak went all over everything we didn't realize at that mission, which happened to be in Athens, Greece, they had the Germans had supply ships in there, and our target was supply ships. And we didn't realize that uh, that we had been hit with uh, anything serious. But come to find out, it hit one of the fuel lines, oh. and consequently, we were losing we were losing fuel, and of course that that was obvious to the pilot because he could see the the fuel gauge was going down, and he knew he knew he couldn't couldn't get back to to uh, Tunisia. At that time, so he uh, <laughs> so he we landed in Sicily, which was closer okay. to uh, where we were were stationed down in North Africa. We landed in Sicily, and everything seemed to be all right. We uh, landed and. When we uh, parked a plane, the whole left wing 
just was a ball of fire. And we all we all got out of the plane. We all got out of the plane. The uh, the uh, the plane naturally was was put out of commission because of the fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, they took us. We we waited there until they could fly us back to our base in, in uh, at that time in North Africa. Okay. So that was your 11th mission? Uh, right in there, probably. I don't really have I don't have that information okay. handy. Okay. So it, it probably it probably was I'm just I'm just going to guess it was it was it was probably more than the we flew more than one mission with the plane that we were assigned after we uh, actually demolished the the first plane. Armand, because of these things, did you ever become afraid of flying? Uh, you know, the first time that I went on a mission and I saw all these <laughs> the air would just be ahead of us would be, just be full of of smoke which of course came, come, came from the missiles from from below that uh, were exploding and when they explode they they disintegrate to where this flak it goes all over, and I thought on that first mission, how in the world, how in the world do we get through there without get without getting hit? Yeah. Well, surprisingly enough, we did, and and uh, but the first mission that I <laughs> that I went on, that uh, I saw all that all that smoke ahead of us, which I knew were full of flack. <laughs> I, I just wondered, how in the world did we get through that? Well, we did. <laughs> but not always. I mean, the flack no, was no, so often, dangerous. No, oftentimes, oftentimes the plane, planes were hit and they had to abort or they had to they had to parachute or they actually crashed. Well, I remember, you know, I, I, for many years, I did not realize, you know, there's a saying, don't give me any flack, or I was getting some flack. I didn't really understand that that was the, the term, the World War II term, because of all the flack that they sent up, you know, into the, into the air to try to hit all of our, our airplanes. And so somebody said to me, if you're getting a lot of flack, that means you're getting near the target. And now it all makes sense to me, Armand. <laughs> well, they... There were many, many more planes that is bombers that were naturally hit with flak than any other way, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were not able to continue the mission. But uh, oftentimes some of the crew would would suffer uh, flak. Uh, flag hit. You know, I had uh, a while back had interviewed Major Frederick Arnold, and he, I think he was a pilot, I want to say, for a P-38, 
uh, and um, in, he was a pilot. He was a fighter pilot. Let me just put it that way. My, my, um, I'm kind of forgetting. Um, but basically, it, you know, he had said that. Now I lost my train of thought as I was telling you that story. Let's stop just a minute on that. Oh my gosh, stop on that. Let me just start over on that particular point. Okay. But you, you asked if I was frightened. Yeah, I'll ask you that question. So, but as okay. far as I, far as I was concerned, uh, I I never really gave it that much. I never lost any sleep over it. Okay, so you, so you were not that nervous to get on the plane again to do the next mission? No, then, huh? I I never I I just never never gave it to any more any more thought. Okay, it was just a job, and that's what what I looked at it as, as just a job. Okay, well, let's go on. Your your last mission is a uh, fascinating story. So tell us about that day. Well, that uh, occurred on Valentine's Day of 1944. And uh, we had a, a mission that day. Not too far from the Brenna Pass, there was a real large marshal what they call railroad marshalling okay. facility, full of supplies and so forth that had been sent down from to uh, help the the Germans there in Italy. Well, while uh, while we were on that particular mission we uh, we were our plane was signaled out by fighters and they did a, a, a very good job of of, uh, of hitting our plane it killed the radio operator both both Waste gunners died, and the tail gunner died, and uh, we uh, we there was a there was a cloud that was beneath us, and the pilot, of course, in order to to keep away from the fighters, after we were already pretty badly hit. Dove, dove into that cloud, and that was the end of of seeing the fighters. The the, navig- the pilot asked the navigator, of course, where is the closest friendly air- airport? Well, it just so happened that it was on the island of Tunisia. And so that was approximately 200 miles. Well, we we didn't have we didn't have quite enough power in the damaged engines that we had. We didn't have quite enough power to maintain altitude, but we had a lot of altitude when we were 
when we started for that 200-mile trip. Okay. Well, when we... When we uh, got to Tunisia, where the, the, the closest airfield was... Now, just well, a question. Was it Tunisia the, or was the, it Corsica? Just a quick question on that, Armin. Was yeah, it, I, I'm sorry. I said Tunisia's Corsica, okay, of course. Okay, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we found, or the pilot found, that the airfield actually wasn't adequate for the bomber to land. So we, he decided the only answer was to actually go out on the on the sea and ditch the plane on on the sea, which is what he did. And and we, uh, those of us that were alive, uh, I mentioned the ones that were killed. Uh, the ones that were alive all all got out, and we had what was called we called them well they were inflatable rafts and dinghies is what we called them and fortunately there happened to be an SC rescue ship from Britain that uh, was stationed in that area and they came out and rescued us. Well, and how did you get out of the plane? So you guys all went down with the plane when the plane was ditched. How did you get out of the plane, Armand? Well, unfortunately, there was a a table that was actually attached to the floor of the radio room, we all get in the radio, uh, everybody but the pilot and co-pilot, they're assigned to the radio room uh, for, for a ditching. Well, in my case, this table that had some equipment on it when you ditch, the plane stops, and when the plane stops, anything inside naturally moves. Well, the position that you take in ditching is you have you go up against the bulkhead, which is between the radio room and the bomb bay. And it's you. You put your back to that. You put your you put your hands up to protect protect your head. So they're up. So you're in that position when the plane ditches, and that table kept going. I mean, it it uh, instead of it, it instead of stopping, it it kept. It moved, oh boy. and it pinned it pinned me actually, and I uh, I had the presence of mind. I had we all had 
what were called May West vests, mm-hmm. which were uh, activated with with CO2, and I did I did inflate the May West. I was still I was still trying to get away from that table because the table came right over chest high on me, and uh, I I finally. I finally got loose of that table, and by that time, <laughs> the radio room was full of water. Uh-huh. So with my May West, I actually floated up through the opening in the radio room ceiling, and all the crew, <laughs> the ones that were alive, all the crew waiting waiting for me patiently and fortunately I I got into the raft along with the rest of them and made it all right but but that was uh, that was a pretty pretty hairy experience I'll tell you Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine on that Armand Armand we are just about out of time but uh, your mother uh, had been notified that you were missing in action, and uh, she didn't know you were alive until you showed up at home. Is that right? Did I That's read that? Right. Uh, it, she got uh, a telegram that we were miss- I was missing in action, and uh, at that time they issued uh, some kind of a special uh, flag that they put in the windows of of those that were supposed to be gone military and my mother got that and uh, I had no way to communicate with the family and so until until I actually got to Boston Mass Boston Massachusetts I never had any opportunity to let the to let the family know, and when I got there, I I my I had a brother that actually wasn't in the service, and he uh, he 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 had a car, and he came down and brought me home, and and as you said, my mother. Oh, well, that was the first time that she realized that that I wasn't over there someplace. Oh, my gosh. Armin Sedgley, that is quite a story. We are out of time. Thank you so much for sharing this story with our listeners. And uh, go to my website, americhicks.com, and uh, everything is archived there. Armin Sedgley, thank you so much for sharing your story. God bless you, and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.